Well, good morning, Forest View. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, it's just, it's been a great week and lots to celebrate and lots of great things to be thankful for. Uh, this morning, I want to give a little bit of a, a roadmap for where we are going over the next number of weeks. We have been navigating this COVID season together, and it's crazy to think that a year ago, we had uh, essentially kind of the mass shutdown. I remember it was a weekend, the weekend a year ago that uh, we suddenly found out, okay, we're not going to be able to do church in a building because of the COVID. Um, and so we uh, did a fi- we filmed a, an interview with myself and Paul, which now if you go back and watch it, just seems like 3,000 years ago. It feels so distant. And we just want to acknowledge just all that has happened over the course of this year. In conversations with you and in our interaction, just trying to figure out where we, what are our needs as a community? Where is God calling us? What, what, does, uh, what do we need to be doing as a church right now? We have been trying to make some decisions about where we are going to be going in terms of what does a return to in-person gatherings look like for us. And so that's something we've been talking about. We've been getting feedback. We've been praying about. And I'm excited to say that we have now put in place a plan to return to in-person gatherings April 11th. So that's the week after our Easter service. So just to kind of give a little bit of a roadmap, uh, Holy Week, we've got some great things planned. We're excited about that, some online stuff. And, uh, and then on Good Friday, uh, we are hoping to have our hikes at various different points uh, in the, our region. Uh, and so we should have four different hikes Um, that are going to be limited in capacity to help uh, just make sure we're keeping that safe and falling within the guidelines of our province. Uh, Then on Sunday morning, we are going to be having an in-person sunrise service here at the church. For all of you early risers who want to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, you can come here bright and early and be a part of that. And then following that, we will have an online service, Celebration of Resurrection Sunday. There's going to be singing, lots of singing, lots to celebrate. And one of the things that we're really excited about is that we're going to be having baptisms. And so you'll be able to watch um, a whole bunch of our, uh, some of our young people who are part of our community who are getting baptized and to hear what God has been doing in their lives. So it's going to be a great Easter morning. And then the following week, we are going to be returning to in-person gatherings. Now we realize that we have people within our community who are at all different places when it comes to this particular issue. Uh, We have some of you who are calling, contacting us, we're talking to you, and you're like, why did we not start gathering like back a month ago, as soon as that was an option for us? You are right there. You are ready to go. You are excited. Maybe you've already gotten your your first shot of the vaccination. Whatever it is, you are excited to be back with people and to worship together. In fact, this is just something you need and you deeply, deeply desire. And so we want to create that and make that available. We are going to be having our Sunday morning gatherings. We're going to be limiting our capacity size. I believe the number is 75 people. At this point, we are going to be doing one service. Depending on the need and the response, we may have to increase that. We're going to figure that out as we go. Uh, The other thing that is important to realize is that with our return to in-person gatherings, we are also going to be doing our our kids' ministry will be resuming as well. And so this will be something that the entire family is able to come and to be a part of. And when I say kids' ministry, I mean there's going to be separate things happening in separate parts of the building for our kids. So it's not just simply coming and watching the service with them. Uh, There's going to be specific ministry happening geared towards them and their age. 
Uh, all of this is going to be happening. There's going to be registration, which is required. And we're also going to need you to wear masks and uh, practice social distancing while you are present on our property. That's really important. Now, that's some of you. You're like, yes, amazing, that's great. We are excited to be there. And yet we realize for many within our community, you are not ready to be gathering back together. For you, maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a health risk and you just realize until you get your vaccination, it doesn't matter wearing how many masks you wear or how much social distancing takes place, it is just not safe for you to do, or for you, maybe it's a comfort piece, you're, you're in concerned and, and you just realize that is not something you are able to do. And want to uh, just simply say this, that we are going to continue to have our live stream indefinitely. So however long, we don't know, maybe this is something forever, um, but we are going to continue that on. And so this will, the online resource will still be available to you, as well as other ministries that are starting to return to in-person aspects. We are going to be doing our best to be functioning in a hybrid model that allows, that is able to minister and to, to, to gather people both in person, but also to gather people online for those who need that. And so we're just so thankful for all of you who have given us input and who, those of you who are praying for us as the leadership at Forest View. These are uncharted waters for a lot of us. I, I was interesting, I was a part of a pastor's group a little while ago and they talked, this one pastor shared, you know, I didn't, I'm, I'm, I didn't get into becoming a pastor because I wanted to be an epidemiologist. I didn't want to be an expert on pandemics. Uh, I got into it because I want to disciple people in the way of Jesus. And so that's been a weird and interesting journey for all of us as we try to figure out what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in the midst of a pandemic. And so we thank you for your prayers. We invite you to keep praying for us. We also want to simply acknowledge this. With our return to kids' ministry, we are going to, while that ministry is going to be smaller than it has been in the past, it is most likely going to require more volunteers to make that safe for everyone who is participating. And so if you are at a place where you are trying to figure out, ah, I've been thinking about getting involved on Sunday mornings and volunteering in some capacity, uh, I would really like to encourage you to think about that and pray about that now. And if that is something God is placing on your heart, please reach out to us here at the church and so we can get you lined up because we definitely need people to help make this happen in a way that is most effective for our kids growing as disciples and also wanting to make sure that it's safe for everyone who participates. All right, well, we are continuing our Lenten series called The Gospel According to Ruth. And we've been reading through this story about two women's journey of facing death and discovering a new life that God has for them on the other side. And so for us, as we are journeying through this, we want to continuously return to the question, are there parts in me that need to die so that God's new life, that God's resurrection life can start to take root in me now today? And so our story this morning, we are picking up in Ruth chapter 3. Uh, and a few different things just to kind of, if you're just joining us this morning, I want to give you a quick update where we are going, where we have come through in this series. Our story is about a woman named Ruth and a woman named Naomi. And Naomi had a husband and two sons, both passed away, and they traveled off to a faraway land. Um, one of her sons married a woman named Ruth, and so Ruth has also experienced significant loss. And so these two women are trying to make their way in the world uh, in the midst of a whole bunch of loss and overwhelming odds and situations stacked against them. 
And so throughout the story, we've talked about them and their journey together, returning back to Israel. They'd lived in Moab for a number of years, and Ruth is a foreigner, and so she's coming and adjusting. She's a, she's a stranger to this foreign land. She's trying to care for her elderly mother-in-law. And uh, what happens in the second chapter, what we looked at last week, we hear, learn about Ruth going and practicing gleaning in the fields of a man named Boaz. And the text reveals to us that Boaz is someone who is related to them. And uh, that Boaz is there, um, he kind of takes a liking or he extends a significant amount of grace to Ruth and gives her extra uh, food that she is collecting and she's able to take it home and suddenly they are discovering that God has not given up on them, that God is continuing to care for them and look after them. Chapter two ends off with this in verse 23. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And so Ruth has this interaction with Boaz. He extends to her grace and generosity. He's looking out for her. He's providing for her. He's giving her protection because it was a dangerous place to be as a woman in that particular time in that part of the world. And then it says this, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So, so Ruth and Naomi, they are essentially, while they're getting this protection, this help, this, this additional support from Boaz, they are on their own. And it says that they were waiting until the wheat and barley harvest were finished, which takes about three months. And so time is passing by. And they are starting to look at their circumstances and realize that they are in a very difficult place. And so Naomi comes up with a plan. I want to read her plan to you here. Starting chapter 3, verse 1. One day Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. So Ruth, or sorry, Naomi begins by simply saying, Naomi, or Ruth, you living with me, this is no life for you. That there is no rest for you, that you are going to constantly be trying to have to go out and to provide for me and for yourself. And you have no one to look after you and care for you to offer the security that you need. In the ancient world of Israel, it was a patriarchal society. Uh, Another way we could say that it was a man's world. And if you didn't have a man in your life, you were incredibly vulnerable. You essentially needed a man to get by. You were outside of the system and you were not, it was not designed to help you, uh, serve you as you lived your life. Uh, I think of uh, when I first got married, my wife and I, we went to the bank. I had never had a credit card before. And, uh, and so I just kind of lived off debit or cash and check. And, uh, and so I figured, I don't need a credit card. But then when we got married, we started to talk, oh, well, maybe down the road we'd like to buy a house and you need to have a credit score, a good credit score in order to do that. 
And so we went to the bank, and I remember going and meeting with the, the, the bank attendant person. They brought us into an office. We sat down, and I said, I'd like to get a credit card. And she said, well, we, I don't have a credit card. I'd like to get a credit card. And she said, well, we need to check your credit score. And I said, well, I don't have a credit score. That's why I want to get a credit card. And she kind of looked at me. She looked at us and was like, well, we can't get you a credit card without getting you a credit score. And I was like, well, this seems broken. Like, I don't know how to make this work for you. It feels like the system is not working the way it's supposed to work. I remember a friend of mine, he lost his wallet and he lost all of his ID and all the different things that come with that. And he was talking about the process of getting all of those things back. And so he'd go and he wanted to get his driver's license back, but he needed to have other ID to prove that he was who he said he was. And so he's like, well, I don't have that. And in order to get that ID, I needed this to get that ID. And it was just a broken system. When you are on the inside of the system, when you have what you need, when you are the kind of person that the system is designed for, the system works great. But when you're an outsider, when you're an outlier, when you're different, the system isn't working for you. And in a man's world, you needed a man to help make things work for you, to make business transactions, to to help uh, uh, secure a husband for you. And so Ruth and Naomi, I mean, these are innovative, strong, brilliant women who realize that the system isn't working for them, that they need a man to help care for them, provide for them, but they can't even organize a marriage because you would need to have men to go and essentially do this, broker this deal that most marriages were at that particular time. And so Naomi says, no, no, we are going to have to do this in our own way, on our own terms. We are not going to wait. And so she devises this plan, this rather scandalous proposal And she charges Ruth and says, go and do these things. Now, uh, we'll dive into the details of that in just a few seconds, but it's important to just be aware of Ruth's response. Ruth simply says this in verse 5, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. And so we don't know what the conversations were that they were having. We don't know what their plan was. We don't even really know what the day-to-day interaction relationship with Boaz looked like. We know that he provided for her that first day, gleaning in the fields. We have no idea if he paid any attention to her day after day after day after that. However, what they do trust in is that Boaz is a man of standing. That's what we read in chapter 2, verse 1. It describes Boaz as a man of of standing. The Hebrew word is ish gabor chayil. Now, typically when we would see that verse in the Old Testament, that, those particular words, it was used to describe a mighty warrior or a man of valor. These are the people that are held up in high esteem. In fact, actually last night I was skimming through a list of all 159 uses of the term because that's what I do for fun on Saturday nights and because I know how to have a good time and going through and looking through this list and, and only a few, less than five are uh, descriptions of people who are not mighty warriors. This is one of those few times this term is used He he is a man of standing, respect. He is admired within the community. And so Naomi, knowing that he is their relative, knowing that he is someone who cares for them to some extent, 
She sees this as the best possible option for them. I mean, this is a man of standing. He, he is a good man of faith. What can we do here? Ruth, you need to go and you need to essentially lay yourself at his feet and, and offer yourself to him. Now, in this particular setting, typically with, with a marriage or a marriage proposal, there's met two men, the, the patriarchs of the family would gather together, they would talk out, there would be a deal exchanged, and the, the daughter would be given to the son of the one family uh, as to be the bride. But that isn't a po- and is very public, and everyone knows and everyone's aware of it. And going with that is usually not just simply the, this marriage that happens, but there's usually some transfer of land or money or crops, whatever it was. And so it's very much like a business transaction. But, Boaz, or, uh, but Naomi realizes there's no way that that is possible for them. One, they don't have anything to give. And two, they don't have men to broker the deal. And so they're going to need to do this differently. And so she encourages, she, she calls Ruth to go to Boaz to lay herself down at his feet in the night uh, so that if he rejects her, she can go back home and not have to walk through shame and to carry around this reputation of the one who was rejected and um, sent away. Now, let's go through the list of what she tells Naomi to do because there's some, or Ruth to do, because there's some interesting things on this. First off, she says, put on perfume, put on your cloak. Now, the NIV translated, put on your best clothes, but the better translation is just simply put on your cloak. The the likelihood is she didn't have lots of different clothes to put on. Uh, Wash, put on perfume, put on your cloak. Sometimes we read this like a romantic, like uh, get yourself all fixed up, look really nice. But what is actually going on here is that this is about an ending of mourning. If you were a husband or a wife, you had lost someone that you love who's close to you. Specifically, if you're a wife, you would dress in a particular way. You would carry about your life in a certain kind of way to show to the world that you were mourning the loss of your husband. And when you stop doing those things, when you washed, when you put on perfume, when you put on your good clothes or just simply putting on your cloak and going out, you were essentially saying, I am finished mourning. I am ready to re-engage with regular day today life. So this is not about her getting herself all fixed up to try and appeal to Boaz. This is about her communicating a message both to Boaz, but to anyone else who might see her, that she is no longer in a mourning period. Okay, next up, wash, put on perfume, put on cloaks, go down to the threshing floor. So go to the place where Boaz is. Next, don't let him know you are there. All right, next one. Wait until he is finished eating and drinking. Next slide. Wait for him to lie down. Next one. Observe where he lies down. I love that this is something that like, it just shows that Naomi is just really smart and thinking ahead uh, because she realizes in her plan, it's gonna be dark. There may or may not be another guy or two, maybe some, serv- some of Boaz's servants who are also spread out there. And, and she's just saying, hey, this plan is not gonna work if you go and you like lie down at the feet of the wrong guy. Uh, so I love that she's just thinking through this. Then it says, go and uncover his feet. And finally it says, and do uh, lie down at his feet. And then it says the final instruction that she gives is do what he says. So she's saying, you've got nothing to offer. We've got no dowry. We've got no connections. We, we don't even have the promise or the potential of having children. Remember, Ruth was married 10 years and was never able to produce a child. And so there's not like she is bringing a whole lot to the table. Essentially, she says, I'm going to prostrate, my, uh, lay myself down at his feet and hope that he will take me in. 
And the idea is that immediately in this particular context, there's no, because there's no transactions needing to take place, that, that essentially if he says yes, they are married in that moment and that evening, they can consummate the marriage. Now, skipping ahead to verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And you can imagine just the shock. What is going on? And so the story, what happens makes total sense. His response is just, who are you? Who is this at my feet? Now, uh, quickly, I want to go over the, the entire list of everything that has happened here. Uh, so she's gone, she's washed, she's put on perfume, she's put on her cloak. She's gone down to the threshing floor. She has made it so she, he doesn't know that she's there. She's waited until he finished eating and drinking. She, she's waited for him to lie down. She's observed where he's lying down. She's gone and she's uncovered his feet and she's laid down at his feet. Okay, so everything is going according to plan. Ruth has done everything that she is supposed to do. And if you're reading this story, there's just this buildup, this suspense. It's like, okay, Ruth has done everything. What's Boaz going to say? What's he going to do? And so he asks this question, who is there? And you can just imagine the readers. And for us too, we kind of lose it because we're, we're reading it, you know, centuries later. But, but there's this tension and there's this question, okay, what is going to happen? Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Okay, so far, so good. Everything is going according to plan. Remember, the final instruction is just simply, do what he says. I want you to notice Ruth's response. Who's there? It's Ruth, your servant. And then she says, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, it's hard for us. We miss this. Maybe it's because we're familiar with the story. We've heard it over and over again, or we're just disconnected from the culture. But, but this is like the scene in the movie where like the big, massive twist happens. I mean, you can almost imagine this if they were to remake this in the modern day context. You know, uh, Naomi's there on a headset. She's listening to everything that Ruth is doing. And she's like, okay, good. You're doing great. You're doing great. And then suddenly when Ruth says, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family, you can imagine Naomi being like, wait, this was not the plan. What are you doing? What is happening? What are you doing? You were supposed to just do what he says. That's all you had to do. You didn't have to do anything. And she, for whatever reason, deviates from the plan, takes it upon herself to do something completely different. His question is, who are you? And Ruth's response is, yeah, I'm going to tell you who I am. And I am also going to tell you who you are. And more specifically, tied in with that, linked within that, I'm going to be telling you what you need to do. Because this term, guardian redeemer of our family, and this invitation to spread the corner of his garment over her, she is telling him what he needs to do. Now, quick reminder, I talked about it at the start, 
This is an Eshkibor Hael, okay? This is a man of good standing. This is a valiant warrior. And Ruth is a Moabite. She has nothing, no, no investments. She's got no money. She's got no prospects. And she is talking to him. She is telling him what to do. This is not something that a Moabite immigrant pagan woman, she's now converted to the people of Israel, but she, she, you don't say that to an Ishkabor Hael. That's not how you talk to him. And yet she puts this out there. I remember a number of years ago, actually, I was, uh, I was working up at camps in the summer while I was away at university, and uh, I would go and work up a camp in Muskoka, and there was this camp I worked at, and then there was another camp, and there was a girl who worked at that camp that I knew. We were in a Bible study. We had uh, actually gone to high school together, and I would had a crush on her for a really long time. And uh, I was working up at camp, and we were friends, and we occasionally, like, email each other or whatever, but uh, I remember it was talking with some friends, and they're like, you need to tell her how you feel because you felt this way for a long time. You need to share that. And I was so nervous, and I was so scared to do it. Um, but this one particular Saturday, Saturdays was our camp's day off, and, uh, well, like day, I mean like afternoon and evening off. And I decided, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go, and I'm going to tell her. I'm going to spill the beans. I'm going to tell her how I feel about her. I'm going to drive over to her camp. And so I remember going over and borrowing my parents' uh, Chrysler 1998 town and country minivan, uh, because nothing gets your confidence up than driving around in your parents' 1998 Chrysler town and country minivan. Uh, I remember driving, doing the 40-minute drive over to her camp, and I knew a bunch of people who worked at that particular camp, and so I was, I was like, this has got to be super stealth. I don't want to see anyone except her. I, I don't want to interact with anyone, and so i got to make this as quick. I'm going to get in. I'm going to say what I need to say. I'm going to get out of there. Hopefully, it's going to go good. And, and I remember I like pulling into the parking spot and getting out of my car and immediately just hearing my friend Paul be like, hey, Nat, how are you doing? It's like, oh, seriously? So I walk with Paul around the camp. We say hi to a couple different people, and I, I remember walking up at this moment, uh, seeing this girl that I'd come to talk to, and she was standing up by the flagpole, and so I was like, oh, okay, i got to go. This is it. I go and I go up and I strike up a conversation with her, uh, and because uh, I'm, uh, you know, she asks, "Hey, what are you doing here?" And because I'm a man of integrity, I made up some story about visiting friends at a cottage nearby. Uh, and I remember talking, and, and there was just sort of some small talk. She had a friend there. My friend was still there, and then realized, "Okay, wait, we need to. This needs to happen." So I just said, "Well, can I just talk to you in private for a second? And I remember kind of walking over to the side and. I said, I don't even remember. I'd rehearsed this speech on the drive up, and it kind of just came out. I don't really know what I said, but I spilled the beans. I shared with her that I had a crush on her, that I had these feelings for her, and I, like, could we grab a coffee sometime? And I remember, like, this huge, like, just kind of release, like, oh, I just, oh, I've said it. And then there was this moment of, like, dread, you know, where it's like this, like, oh, it felt so good to say, and then immediately it's like, oh, no, it's out there now. And I remember her looking at me and she taking the breath to respond. And then someone said, hey, Nat, how are you doing? And came over to say hi. And I remember that moment being like, seriously, this is happening right now. Are you kidding? And so, hey, it's so good to see you. And I tell them why I came to the camp. Well, not why, I told them my lie of why I came to visit. And small talk, and, and I've just got this feeling of dread over me and just waiting. And then finally, like, this conversation started to die down. I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll see you later. And they walked off. And so, so I remember, okay, back onto my crush, came looking and talking to her. And then she says, she, she starts to say something, and I kid you not, 
someone else is like, Nat, what are you doing here? What are you? I'm like, how in the world does every single person I know at this camp suddenly found me right now, comes up and says hi. And so again, we go through that small talk, small talk cycle, and just awkwardness. And then I remember finally coming back and being able to, okay, all right. And she, she just apologized, I'm sorry, that's so weird and embarrassing. Uh, and then she, she just simply said, she's like, well, I'm just not interested in a relationship at all right now. And uh, so I remember that moment of like, just that you say that and you put it out there and there's just this vulnerability. Now, I really held on to the right now part. Like that's what I heard the emphasis on. I think the emphasis was just, I'm not interested. <laughs> that's what I should have understood it to mean. Uh, it's okay, don't feel bad for me. Things worked out all right. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy with how things turned out. Uh, but I simply say all that. There are those moments where you put something out there. There's that moment where you realize if you say something, if you, do, if you create this thing, maybe, maybe you're a creative person and you're creating a, a, some kind of art and it's just you put all this work and energy and you, you, you put it out there and you have that feeling of like, oh, I'm so glad I did this, but at the same time, I needed to do this and at the same time, there's just this fear and this dread because there's this risk, this vulnerability, there's this, oh, what, how is this going to be taken and understood. Uh, maybe for you, it's, it's a conversation that you needed to have with a family member or, or an employer or an employee, and you realize that when you have this conversation, everything is going to change. It can't go back to the way it was before. And things might get way better, or things may get way worse, but going back to the way things were is simply not an option. I mean, that's... That's Ruth's experience right here. She takes this huge risk and tells Boaz, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now I want to explain quickly what this, what is happening here, what she is asking, what she is essentially demanding of Boaz. Now in the ancient world, specifically in uh, the time of ancient Israel, they had a, a role of someone called the kinsman redeemer or the guardian Redeemer, as they translate in the NIV. The kinsman redeemer was a, a close relative, usually the closest relative, and essentially to, to deal with cycles of debt that could happen, basically people getting trapped in poverty in the ancient world, uh, what they would do is that if a person in Israel had to sell off their land, the nearest family member was essentially, who could afford it was a, required to go and to purchase that land. And this is because the, the, the land that they were given was a gift from God. It was the holy land. It was the promised land. And so they were called to, um, they could never, they were not supposed to get rid of it. And the idea was, is that this family, it would, their land would be kept safe. It would remain within their tribe. And then ultimately, this year that they would have called the year of Jubilee, which would happen uh, every uh, 50 years, that they would be able to um, reclaim that land and they'd be given it back. They would essentially be released from their debt. So this was the role of the kinsman redeemer, the family member to jump in when another family was in need and they needed to sell off their property. Here just in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 25, it says this, if one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. So Ruth here is saying, you are a kinsman redeemer. Naomi and I, we are struggling to survive. We don't have a husband to go and sell off this property. We need you to come and to redeem it, to buy it so that we have the money, the resources that we need in order to survive. But then she ties both the kinsman redeemer aspect and she combines it with another thing. 
which is this call or this invitation to marriage, to put his garment over her. Uh, in the ancient world, they had something called the liberate law or the yubam law in Hebrew. And essentially the idea of this is that if a woman, or sorry, if a man was married, he died and he didn't have a son, it was the role of the nearest brother to marry his wife and do his best to provide her with a son who would then be raised essentially in the name of the woman's original husband. And so, uh, actually, you go to uh, Deuteronomy, it just talks about this a little bit, gives a little bit more clarity. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Now, in the ancient world, the highest priorities, the things of the deepest value for them was all about property and progency. It was about land and it was about kids, right? You wanted to have children. You wanted your name to carry on. And so the idea behind each of these was to make sure that the people who are vulnerable and hurt, the, the people who, and again, this one especially seems like weird right now. We listen to that, we're like, that just does not sound good at all. Uh, but at the time, it was actually viewed as a way to make sure that this woman would be cared for, provided for, protected. And it also meant and ensured that her name and her legacy and her husband, original husband's legacy would live on. And specifically, this had a huge impact on inheritance because this son who would grow up in, in essentially in the place of the deceased father, he would receive that part of the inheritance. And so what Ruth is doing here is she, when she asks him to spread the garment over her and to be the guardian redeemers, to take on these two roles, to combine them into one, would you purchase this property, the land that we have, and would you come and would you essentially look after me, take me on as your wife? And, uh, and essentially she's like, this is a two for one deal. Like I come with the land and the land comes with me. This is not Naomi's plan, this is Ruth's plan. And you can imagine for Boaz, for one, it might mean a reshuffling of all of his finances. I need to go and buy this land now. Number two, it might mean divvying up his inheritance. As an Ishkabor Hayil, he must have had sons, at least a son. And so that would mean he's going to be taking out of his inheritance to give to a potential other son. There's a lot of risk involved here. And what's on the line for Ruth? Well, he can simply say no. He can be offended. Who's this Moabite woman to come and talk to me like this and demand this of me? I'm technically not even either of these two things. And she comes to me and she demands that I do that. I mean, she is risking her safety. She is risking her security. She's risking provision. She's risking her comfort. And she is risking her reputation. I mean, the original readers of this, they're just thinking, oh man, they're on the edge of their seat. What is going to happen? But Ruth's response, or sorry, Boaz's response is this. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. So his response is not, ah, oh, I'm frustrated, angry, grossed out. His response is, oh, the Lord bless you. 
This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. Now, he is referring back to his original conversation with Ruth in chapter 2, where he talks about the incredible kindness that she has shown to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And here's the thing that's fascinating about this, because sometimes we read this story as like a love story, and we read this as him going, oh, it's so nice you gave an old man like me a chance. But that is not what he is saying. He is not talking about the love that she has shown to him. She is talk- he is talking about the love that Ruth is showing in her proposal, in her taking this massive risk, the love that she is showing to Naomi. We often talk about Ruth being a love story, and that's absolutely true. But it's not, the focus is not on a romantic love story between Ruth and Boaz. It's about a chesad kind of love that happens between Ruth and Naomi. She takes this massive leap of faith. She takes this incredible risk. She goes and she asks for the extra mile. And she does this because for deep care, and commitment to Naomi and to Naomi's legacy. She is willing to sacrifice everything, her comfort, her security, her provision, her future, and her reputation out of love for Naomi. The word I just alluded to, the word chesed, it's, it's the word that's used for kindness here in the text. This is the love that God has for his people. And in part one of our series, we talked about how this is this loyal kind of love, like a never giving up love. And here we see a different dimension to what this love means and is. This is a sacrificing love. This is a self-giving love. This is a love that says, I'm going to put my own self-interest aside and do what is best for you. Ruth risks it all for Naomi. She lays it all aside and says, I care about you, I love you, and I'm willing to give up everything for you. This is the same kind of love that that God, Yahweh, shows to his people in Israel, and this is the same kind of love that God reveals to us through Jesus Christ. And it is a kind of love that we get as Jesus pours out his life for us and sacrifices himself for us that we can know and live with God for eternity. It is the same kind of love that we are invited into to show and to model to the world as people of God. John chapter 15, Jesus says this to his disciples. This is what it means if you are going to follow Jesus. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Jesus says, you show the world who I am, the God that I am, when you love each other with the same kind of laying down your life, sacrificial, putting aside your own needs, love that I have lived out for you. 1 John 3.16, the writer says this. This is how we know what love is. There's all kinds of definitions for love. You can watch those movies. You can listen to those romantic love songs. uh, you, You can listen to the epic stories, whatever it is, those romance novels, whatever. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Essentially, he's saying love is gonna hurt. 
It involves laying yourself down, surrendering yourself down. It's, it's often, it's not, it's not fancy. Often it's not glorious. Often it means putting things at risk. It risks rejection. It risks your own comfort and security. It risks your own provision that you'd be providing for yourself. And it can even risk your reputation. Ruth, we see this incredible example of Hassad love. I simply want to say this to our church family, uh, Forceview. Uh, we've been here now, my wife and I, a little over a year, and we have been blown away by the love that you have shown us, the sacrificial love, you guys laying down your life for us. Uh, my wife, she was having a conversation with a friend of hers that she'd reconnected with, and this particular friend, her life had it was falling apart in a lot of different ways, in a bad marriage that was crumbling uh, and just facing some really serious, overwhelming health concerns. And my wife was updating her on how our life was going and, and the health issues that she has been walking through and just feeling overwhelmed and, and the challenges that she's been facing. But, but she was able to say, Julie, my wife, she was able to say, that, but, but our church family has been incredible. The love, support, the care, the, the self-giving, the laying down of their time and their energy and resources to care for us. And I remember Julie coming and talking about her friend, this conversation, and her friend said, man, it sounds like I need a forest view right now. And here is the truth. The world needs that. Our invitation is to, is to show that love, to reflect that love, that sacrificial, oh, go the extra mile, Love for this world. Now, one of the ways that we can simply do that is by telling people, pointing people to Jesus and his sacrifice and his love for them and inviting them to, to, to come and respond to him in faith and to entrust their lives to him. That is, that is what we can definitely do, especially in a world where, I mean, there are some people when life is difficult and painful, but, but when we can hear that, like, no matter what you're going through, that is a message we all need to hear. But yet it goes out beyond that, where we see hurting, where we see brokenness, how we as a community are willing to say, no, we're going to put aside our security and our comfort, and we're going to lay our reputation down and say, God, uh, we want your love to flow through us. We want to be examples of your love. I love the way that this particular passage ends off, or not even this particular passage ends off, but, but the way um, Boaz speaks about Ruth. I need to go back a couple slides. He says this, you have run, uh, so he basically says this, this kindness is greater, the chassad you've shown me earlier, or shown earlier. He says, and now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Now, the interesting thing is about this particular word, noble character, woman of noble character. This is the female wording, the exact same word that is used to describe the kind of man that Boaz is. It is another way we could translate this is she's a woman of, of valor. She, she's a woman warrior. I think he uses this simply because he sees this woman who's like willing to fight, willing to sacrifice everything for others. And I love that he sees this and celebrates this in her, especially in a culture that would have simply looked at her and said, well, she's a woman, and so is she beautiful? 
Is she able to provide sons? I mean, all these different things that she is not able to do, and yet he looks at her, and he's not thinking, oh, she's married or not married. She doesn't have any kids. Like, he sees her, and he says, you are a woman of noble character. You are a mighty warrior woman. But my hope and my prayer that as we commit ourselves to the way of Jesus, uh, to his sacrificial love, to, to chesed love, to, to self-giving, laying down our lives love, that, that others would come to know and experience the love that God created them for. Because like my wife's friend, they need a forest view. They need that kind of love. There's a world crying out in need. And let's respond to it with the hope that we have in the love that comes from God. Uh, to conclude things, I wanted to give like a little bit of a cliffhanger because this, this is a brilliant short story. So, so Boaz is like, I'm good, I'm in. But then he goes on to say, uh, just to finish things off, Ruth chapter three, verse 12, 13. Although it is true that I am your guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who is more closely related than I. So the story doesn't end. Next week, we're going to look at what happens. How does this play out? But, but for now, I want to sit with this. Where in your life are you modeling self-giving, self-giving sacrificial love? I mean, where in your life does it hurt? Or, or what are things that are holding you back from really living and embodying that love? Is it, is it an addiction to comfort? Is it fear? Is it, is it about the desire for security? Are you trying to hold on to and cultivate a particular reputation with a specific group of people or maybe just a general reputation? What might it look like for you to take a risk like Ruth and to step out and to live for others in a sacrificial, self-giving way. Let me pray, and we'll conclude our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Ruth, this mighty woman of valor, who, who reflects to us your incredible love, and reflects to us, inspires us, your calling that you place on each and every one of us. We thank you for the way that she points us to Jesus, our need for him, our need to be redeemed by him and saved by him, and the invitation that we have to share his love with others, both through our words and our actions. I pray that you would lead us and guide us, not just simply as individuals, but as a church, that we might be the place that this world so desperately needs. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, Forest View, let me simply conclude with this benediction. May you know that through Jesus Christ, you have been redeemed and restored, that he has brought his wing, his garment over you, and that he has redeemed you. And may you go sharing in and making known his love to the world. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Go in peace.